This is the Knowledge Leaders Podcast with Todd Hand. Hi, really excited to be talking with Susan Wolford. Susan, hello and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Todd. Thanks for having me. It must be August. You and I do this every year before the big BMO back to school conference in New York in September. That's right. Okay, so we want to talk about the conference, and I also want to get your update on, you know, the the deal environment in the education sector. But before we start, this is a question I have never asked you, but I am really interested in the answer, and that is, how does a history major at Villanova (laughs) become the group head of technology and business service at an investment banking firm. Oh my gosh! Well, there's a long-storied uh, history, but I will I will ba- I will spare you all the de- all the gory details and just say um, back in the day, you know, I first there is a tie to education. When I first left Villanova, a history major, I went to Columbia, and I went to Columbia for my PhD in get ready for it Soviet studies, and about two semesters in, I had a very very kind professor who pulled me aside and we were talking, we had become friendly and he said, look, what are you doing? Like, what's, what are you thinking? And I'm like, well, and what year was this? This was, oh, come on, you're not going to do that to me, but this was 1979. Okay. And, um, but he, 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 he said, what are you, what are you thinking? And this, this academia thing is like really tough, you know, and you know, you're not going to be working in places like Columbia. Uh, you're going to be working in places like, I, I won't name the name he mentioned, but it was a small school in the Midwest that I had never heard of. And he was sort of saying, you know, you just have to work your way up the ranks. It's very long and tedious and, and difficult. And it, basically his message was, if I had to do it over, I wouldn't. So um, I, uh, <laughs> I took, his, I took his, his, his comments very much to heart and took a couple business courses at Columbia's Business School which was open to people in the School of International Affairs at the time. And that opened my eyes to a summer internship in investment banking, which then led me to flee to Wall Street, like all good ex-history majors that don't know what they're going to do with their life did back way back then, because we used to hire liberal arts majors, which we really don't very much anymore. And that led to a very traditional investment banking career where I went through a couple of groups, and ended up working in education, which is typically part of a technology practice, oftentimes part of a technology practice, and just stayed here so long they eventually had to make me group head. So I was group head for about 15 years. In fact, just stepped down from that back in November and became vice chair. Um, And I did that really so I could really focus my time and attention on the education companies and not have to manage this big unruly group that we have assembled here at, at, at BMO that covers the, the technology sector. So it's it actually was a pretty traditional career path after I, you know, started this PhD program, which PS never finished because I went off and got my degree in international finance. So that's what it is. I would not recommend that as a start to any of you young guys out there, young women out there, because it was just total luck that I was able to sort of jockey into a position which I've come to love and I can't imagine doing anything else in my life. So no regrets? Oh, none at all. Okay, let's, let's talk about... The Soviet Union doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> a very short-lived um, occupation. That was good advice. Do you remember the person's name who gave you the advice? I do, but I'm not going to say. Okay. <laughs> because you, I, I like to give shout-outs to people that give good advice or mentors. Oh, aren't you nice? Yeah, no, I'll leave that one. I, I, I've attributed to a couple of different people over my career because I, I, I gave credit to them at the time I was talking to them, and they thought that I actually did it. So I know who actually did do it, but several people believe they did it. So... I'm going to leave it at that. 
All right, so let's talk about the current state of deals in education. It just seems from reading headlines and press releases that uh, times are good and there are a lot of deals happening. Times are great. It is a great time to be a seller, Harder, a little bit harder to be a buyer, but both the equity and the debt markets are extremely open to funding activity. Um, liquidity is very, very high. And because of that confluence of, you know, lots of, lots of receptivity in the debt market, that leads, that leads the groundwork for healthy multiples and, you know, just an abundance of capital looking to put money into, into deals. It, it's just been a banner year for, I think, a banner year for education companies are trading at very nice multiples. And we've had this, we've had this been going on for at least, you know, two, three years. What are the gotchas? What are the risks in an environment like this? Well, the obvious risk, of course, is that you're overpaying because we, we believe that the market is probably trending about 25 or 30 to 30% higher than what a similar profile would have traded for five years ago. So let's say that's two to three multiples higher than it would have been five years ago for that profile. You know, and, and what you have to ask yourself is, if, if there's a multiple contraction, you know, if multiples revert back to what we would have seen as more normal multiples for that set of financial metrics, you know, there'll be a lower return. Now, I think part of what's driving this, this movement to higher pricing is the acceptance of lower returns. And we've, seen, we've, we've been hearing about that phenomenon for several years. You know, if before we used to solve our models, our financial models for 20 to 25% returns, you know, now we solve for 15 to 20% returns, and rarely is it at the 20% range, right? So you're solving for returns oftentimes in sort of the 17% range, and that leads to the ability. And if you're happy with that, if that is a satisfactory return, and maybe it should be with the 10-year treasury under 2%, right? 17% is not a bad return in the current in the current environment relative to alternatives that one can invest in. So, you know, when we think about the gotcha, the gotcha could, is, is most likely where are the multiples when you exit? Where are they going to be? And will it end up, will you, will you end up getting a return that, that met your return criteria as it's set out today? So it's, you know, for every, for every company, there's a different particular issues list, right? So one of the things we do when we pitch a piece of business is we come up with what are the gotchas for that particular company? But I think your question, Todd, was more around what are the gotchas about the current deal environment? And most, you know, the most obvious gotcha is if there's a reversion to lower multiples, what does that, what does that mean when you go to exit when you've bought in an environment of higher, of higher multiples? Are you seeing institutional investors more active than strategics or vice versa? They're both active. I think that in our world, in the education space, you know, there is an overwhelming majority of companies purchased by private equity rather than strategics. And there's a whole host of reasons for why that is, you know, and one example is we've just gone through, you know, two years of really wonderful companies, fantastic companies getting bought up in the sort of education publishing space. You know, so guys like Renaissance and Curriculum Associates, you know, really Cambium, like great names companies that I really think large strategics will love to own. You know, Weld North is a great example of a great name that I'm sure there are some big 
basil publishers that would love to own those names that I just mentioned. And there's a real disconnect between what they traded for and what some of those very large traditional publishers would have would have traded for had they been in the market. And so there was a disconnect between their ability to pay or their willingness to pay a multiple that was considerably higher than where they believe they would have traded for at that time, right? Times change. So we've just gone through a period where all of those wonderful companies I mentioned were purchased by private equity investors, despite the fact that there were highly logical strategic buyers that actually should have purchased, in my opinion, those companies. But, you know, due to financial engineering and, and, and relative exits of those strategics, you know, it was just difficult for them to justify the purchase. So we, this is a sector that's dominated by sponsor activity anyway. And, you know, there have been some trends in the sector that have made it even more difficult for the strategics to compete, not the least of which is the leverage environment, right? So a, a highly levered environment advantages a advantages a financial buyer typically because a financial buyer is more willing to lever it to the max than a strategic buyer is. Not always, but more typically. Are you seeing any trends across sectors in terms of deal activity? Is, is you know, pre-K was hot for a while. Is that still hot? Uh, you know, certainly workforce development and certification training is a hot area. What are, what are some, some trends you yeah, well, you, you definitely you have definitely mentioned some of the hot trends workforce development you know reskilling they're all you know that 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 sector is something people look for the the large number of deals that came to market that were in education publishing has created a very a, a good number of sponsors who are now well-schooled in the ins and outs of education publishing. So I think that is a sector where there's a lot of attention that's paid. And, of course, driven by the, by the trends that are going on in that sector, you know, the movement to personalized learning, the movement to blended learning. You know, those things inspired sponsors to dig into those processes, and there were enough processes that, that happened one after another to cause – a number of funds to become truly become experts, whether they want or not. You know, there are some companies that are there are some sponsors that are really well versed in those things. So I think the trends in in K twelve publishing are big. You know, there continues to be a lot of interest in early childhood education. In fact, there are fewer and fewer companies as that sector has consolidated, and we're seeing very oddly active spaces for very small preschool companies. You know, with and that, I think, is indicative of people's appetite for a trend which says both the government and parents understand the importance, not just of child care, but of early childhood education. And so despite the, the relative lack of, of product on the market for early childhood education, lots of activity con- or lots of interest continues to be demonstrated there. So, and that inures to the benefit of smaller companies that are getting the attention of funds that typically wouldn't dip down that small, but are to capture that trend of you know the public and, and pu- public and private awareness of the importance of ECE. So we expect that to continue as well. But workforce development would be near the top of the list of what I think people are spending their time on, as well as sort of the the trend in education publishing. We're fielding a lot of calls. We're seeing a lot of activity in training and certification. That in the last six months is probably the hottest area that we're seeing. Yep, that doesn't surprise me at all. I, and I think there are, 
there aren't enough companies to satisfy the demand, which is also part of it, right? There aren't enough scaled businesses to satisfy the demand. So that makes it interesting because that makes people, will, again, willing to go to a smaller platform with the hope that they can do a massive number of add-on acquisitions and, and become the platform that will be the solution for much bigger companies. And the demand is growing. Yep, absolutely. Susan, we're seeing lots of private equity firms who have never looked at the education sectors now dipping their toes in and, and doing deals. Are you seeing the same thing? Um, that have never looked at it? Yeah. I mean, I think that, I don't think it's, I don't think it's new to today. I think there has, you know, pretty consistently over the 20 years that I've covered education, you know, we have people, new entrants come in which is great because we like new blood. Um, one of the things that we say to people is, you know, education investing is not for amateurs. If you're going to invest in education, then you need to do it, and you need to be serious about it. You need to spend time doing it because our end market, you know, education end markets are quirky. They don't always make decisions that would seem rational to a business type, right? And so you have to, you have to understand that. So the best education investors are people who do dedicate and devote, if not all of their time to it, a lot of time to it. And so, yes, Todd, we do see new funds looking to mine the space. But I'd say that that's not – doesn't catch us by surprise because it seems like consistently we've been called by people to say, hey, we understand there's this space. Can we come in and get a teach-in? And we'll do that. Sometimes they'll endure and they'll stick with it. And sometimes, you know, it, 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 they don't. So, so I don't think it's more right now, but I do. We always see fresh blood looking to, for more investment opportunities to mine. And I think they do get the message pretty quickly that you can have either a competitive advantage or disadvantage. If you decide to do this, you must dedicate time and effort to learning this, the, the sector, and I think more so than many sectors because of the quirkiness of the end market. And, and it's risky. Yes, that quirkiness leads to risk because it, they're not, you know, the decisions aren't made necessarily logically the way, uh, you know, it would be. And then, for example, enterprise software might be purchased, you know, in a certain way under a certain RFP process in a, you know, in a corporate environment. And that same enterprise software RFP might feel very different when you're, in fact, I'm sure it feels very different when you're dealing with post-secondary schools or dealing with K-12 schools. You know, it's a different mindset that, that rules the decision-making of the institutions that is the end market of these education companies that we deal with. And so while they themselves are very business-like, lots of times they're customer-based comes at things with considerations that would not be considered by a corporate board the way it's considered by a not-for-profit school company, for example. Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. Okay, the conference on September 12th, the 19th annual BMO Back to School Conference. Yes. What can people who are attending expect this year? Okay. Well, this year, you know, again, we'll have about 100 companies present, and you know the format is we have four tracks, two of them Two of the tracks are public companies, reserved for public companies, as well as for large, larger privately held companies. So that's two tracks. The other two tracks are very interesting. They're full of panels that will, you know, we put together five 
CEOs moderated by someone who usually knows something about that sector, and they'll talk about the leading themes and um, opportunities in the sector at the moment. So great content. You know, this is a conference that I think really does have great content. The mission of the conference is to present real sort of inside views about around thematic investment opportunities. So the target market are investors, either private or public, lenders, VCs. The, the target market is not, you know, the marketing guys or other people at the organization. So it really is around talk to us about the themes that will drive investment-making decisions. And so we're excited to have it. This year's conference will feel a lot like, like the previous conferences. If you've been to a BMO conference, we're not changing the format. I think but you're back, you're back at the Hyatt this we're year. We're back at the Hyatt. Yes, Excellent. So uh, a lot more room there. So hopefully we can accommodate the crowd that always turns out. Well, I am a big fan of this conference. For anyone who has not been there, it is just packed full of executives, thought leaders, investors in and around the knowledge, learning, education sectors. I get as much value running into clients and, and friends uh, out in the hall as inside the, you know, the rooms listening to the panels. And so it is a full day of rich content and, and great opportunities to, to meet up with people. Well, thank you. Thank you for the compliment. Well, I am looking forward to, to seeing you there. Uh, that is September 12th in New York City. Yep. And the education sector continues to hum along, and, and that's good for all of us, right? Oh, absolutely. It couldn't be a more exciting time. It's great. A excellent. All right. Okay. I'll see you in a couple Thanks, weeks. Todd. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode and that you'll join us again for the next Knowledge Leaders podcast.